Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We'll be discussing Jesus' sending out the apostles to preach the gospel and John the Baptist martyrdom. So if you'll open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, we'll begin our lesson. Let me open us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this group. You're so good to us. We are so appreciative and grateful for everything that you've given us. Help keep us focused on what's important, which is you, as opposed to all the material things and everything else. Help us to stay focused on you, Lord. Help us represent you to others. And as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark this morning, I ask that you speak through me, just guide our discussion, help each of us hear what we need to hear today so that we can leave here transformed by the Holy Spirit and represent you out in this crazy world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are in Mark chapter 6. We finished with chapter 5 last week. So we'll just jump right in here. It says, and he went out from there. So this is Jesus. Jesus went out. He was in Capernaum is where we left off. That's his home base, you remember. That's what he had adopted as his home base. He went out from there and came into his hometown, which we all remember as Nazareth. This is actually his second visit that is recorded in the Bible after he began his public ministry to go back and visit Nazareth. We studied that when we were in Luke. If you want to take a look at that, it was in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 is where it really talks about his first visit back to Nazareth. And just so you know, when he was there then, they basically, when you go read that account in Luke, they basically just ran him out of town. So he's going back, and we see, in this case, he took his disciples with him. There no mention of the disciples being with him when he visited in Luke. So that's where he's going. He goes to Nazareth, which is, by the way, about 25 miles to the southwest of Capernaum. Verse 2, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. He typically did that on the Sabbath. And the many listeners were astonished. He's in Nazareth, even though last time he was there, they ran him out of town. They're listening to his teaching, and they're really amazed by it. It was mind-blowing teaching to them, but they still aren't going to believe. We'll see that. As he's teaching, they say, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him in such miracles as these performed by his hands? So remember, Nazareth is a small town. I saw estimates that maybe there were 500 people who lived there at that time. They would have known Jesus as he grew up there. These people know him. They know he hasn't been trained as a rabbi. They've seen him do these miracles, and he did these miracles, as we've discussed, to prove that he was God. I've showed you some of these verses before. Just let me show you that again. I'll flip over there real quick. I'm going to go over to John 10, verse 37, if you're taking notes. And this is Jesus speaking. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them... Though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. It goes on to say, therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So that's why he did these miracles, to authenticate who he was, 
I'll show you also just staying in John. I've got several verses, but I'll flip back over to the left in the Gospel of John 5, verse 36. And this is Jesus speaking again. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, referring to John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. That's why he performed these miracles, to prove that he was, in fact, God. But they don't believe it. They've been given plenty of evidence, but they still refuse to believe. They've seen these miracles. They even refer to it. It says, where did this man get these things? I'm back over in the text. I'm in verse 2. This teaching, how was this wisdom given to him in such miracles as these performed by his hands? So nobody ever denies the miracles. Later, as we've referred to before, the Jewish leaders and then, I guess, many of these non-believers, they say he got his power from Satan. Verse 3, remember, these people know him. This is where he grew up. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So they know him well. They know his family. They know his brothers. They know his sisters. Now, it is a little unusual here to refer to someone by the mother. They say, this is the son of Mary. That's an unusual reference. Usually, if you don't refer to the father, it might have been because he had died at this time. We really don't hear anything more about Joseph in the Gospels after this time. So maybe he had passed away by this time. And that's why Jesus is referred to this way. It also may be that this is meant as an insult to Jesus. That they're basically saying he was an illegitimate son. That Mary had had sex with someone else, not Joseph, before she and Joseph married. But in any event, it's an unusual reference there. But we also see they all know he's got brothers. They know he's got sisters. Just in what's written here, sisters is plural. That's at least six, four brothers and at least two sisters, maybe more sisters. We don't know. We aren't given their names. But one thing that this does is it really shows that the Catholic teaching that Mary was a perpetual virgin, didn't have any children other than Jesus, it really just shows that that is false, what's taught in the Catholic Church. They didn't have to go there. They say Mary was born without sin from the beginning, and she was a perpetual virgin forever. It's clear in so many places throughout the Bible that that is false teaching. In fact, we look at Luke. I showed you this before. I'll just go over there and show you Luke 2, verse 7. By the way, there's other references to his brothers and sisters throughout the New Testament. But Luke chapter 2, verse 7 says, And she, being Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son. That's referring to Jesus. If it were her only son, it would say only son. It's firstborn, meaning there's a second, there's a third, there's a fourth. There's other children. So, Larry, how do they reconcile this? This is a Pope proclamation. No, I know. I understand you, you, that, you but can't. when you address this with your Catholic friends. What they say is there's places, and this is true, like sometimes we call each other brothers and sisters, like we're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just an endearing term of closeness. 
There's some Catholics that believe that these people that are mentioned as brothers and sisters are actually cousins of Jesus or perhaps even children of Joseph from an earlier marriage before he married Mary. The problem with that theory is that when you look at Luke's detailed description of the trip to Bethlehem and even Matthew's description of the subsequent flight to Egypt, It talks about an angel telling Joseph, get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph is to take two people, Mary and Jesus, but there's nothing even mentioned about other children that should be taken. And there's no detail in the Bible about on their trip to Bethlehem that there were other children involved. So you got that problem. Also, when you look at Matthew, I think it's chapter 1, verse 25, it says that Joseph didn't consummate their marriage. In other words, he didn't have, he kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to a son. So that would lead you to believe that until once Jesus was born, then he no longer kept her a virgin. So he kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. So there's just all kinds of problems when you start twisting things around in the Bible that don't square up with what is actually written in the Bible. You're on a very slippery slope. I could show you other verses, but we won't spend our time on that now. That's what you got. When man gets involved in adding to Scripture, you get yourself in a heap of trouble. That's what they teach. It's counter to what's in the Bible. I had to get over all that myself, you know, growing up in that. Still working on it. I'm still working on it. (laughs) No, I'm clearly over it. Remember, none of his brothers believed in Jesus until after his resurrection. If you want to look at that, I can show you that in John 7, 5. Let me show you that over there. I'll go over to John. It says in verse 5 of John 7, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So his brothers didn't believe in him. We saw earlier, a couple of lessons ago, over in Mark 3.21, where they come and they are trying to rescue Jesus. They're worried about him. And it says, and when Jesus' own people, meaning his family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. So they thought it was crazy. Even his brothers thought he had lost his mind. Now, I don't think you can say the same thing about his mother, Mary, I base that on some of the things that we read about Mary's belief in him. Let me get you the reference to that. In Luke 1, when Mary has been told by the Holy Spirit that she's going to give birth through a miracle to God's Son, she says, My soul exalts the Lord. This is in Luke 1, verse 46. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, and he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. She goes on to talk about how God is going to really use her to bring about the promises that have been spoken through the prophets. You read down to verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So she knew that this baby that she was going to have miraculously was the promised Messiah. And by the way, while I'm looking at it, I wasn't planning on mentioning this, but The Catholics teach that Mary was without sin. Well, if you're without sin, I don't think you're crying out saying, God, my Savior. Because if you're born without sin, you don't need a Savior. So there you see in Luke 1, 47, 
sort of throws that into a real problem place. Anyway, I go with what the Bible says. It's like I tell my Catholic friends, you can go with what you were taught or you can go with what's in the Bible. I choose to go with what's in the Bible. I just feel I'm on a lot more firm ground there. Also, just so you know who some of these brothers of Jesus were, James came to faith and believed in Jesus after Jesus' resurrection and actually became a leader in the Jerusalem church. You can read about that if you're interested in Acts 15. We discussed that when we were studying Acts. He also wrote the epistle of James. And then Jude, one of Jesus' other brothers, wrote the epistle of Jude, which we studied not too long ago. Anyway, let's go back to the text over in Mark 6. So he's in Nazareth. These people don't believe. Even his family doesn't believe. And we see there at the end of verse 3, they take offense to him. Once again, last time he was there, they threw him out of town. Verse 4, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. So he's even saying a prophet has honor except with his own family and in his own town. His family and his town don't believe in him. A prophet has no honor with those people. Where he goes elsewhere, then he has honor. Verse 5, and he could do no miracle there, talking about Nazareth. It's not that he couldn't, he just didn't, except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. He just saw there's no reason to do more miracles there. He's already done that. He is the Messiah, but they won't believe it. So he didn't need to do more, in their mind, just magic. He may not have wanted to do more miracles here because there's scripture that I can show you here that the more that has been revealed to you and you continue to reject, you will actually incur even a harsher judgment. Let me show you where that is. That's over in Matthew eleven twenty. I'll flip over there and read that to you. Matthew eleven twenty. it says, Then he, being Jesus, began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done. And listen to one of the cities that he's going to mention. Because they did not repent and they didn't believe. He's going to name some of them out. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And now look at this. Remember, where is his adopted hometown after he left Nazareth? Capernaum. He says, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, remember Sodom was destroyed, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day, because people would have been exposed to more, and he's saying more people would have come to believe. Verse 24, Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, than for Capernaum his adopted hometown. So that is teaching that the more that has been revealed and you continue to reject, you'll actually even suffer a harsher judgment. Okay, let's go back over to the text. It does say he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. It doesn't say that they came to faith. There were a lot of people he healed before they actually expressed belief in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you want some of those, if you're taking notes, I've got a few of them here. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, John 9, 1 through 7, 
John 5, 13, and Mark 1, 23 through 26, as well as it looks like I have a reference here to Mark 5, 2. Let's continue on. And he wondered at their unbelief. There he is, his hometown. He's going like, I've done everything I can. They're still not believing. These people won't believe. And it says, and he was going around the villages teaching. So he continued to teach. Verse 7, and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. He's been training the disciples. Remember a few lessons ago, I said he'll still do miracles and healing, but that's not going to be his focus. His focus is now going to be on training the disciples. So he's been doing that. Now he's going to send them out for the first time. He's sending them out. He sends them out in pairs. Now that's a practice that is still followed by many missionaries today. I know when I've gone on missionary journeys, for instance, in Mexico, we go out in pairs. There are several reasons for that. Some of it is based on Deuteronomy 19.15, which says you should have two witnesses for truth to be there. It's just always helpful to have two people there. It's not required. Ecclesiastes 4.9. Yep. Two are better than one, they have a better return for their labor. Correct. But don't use that as an excuse that you can't witness because you don't have somebody else. We're still called to make disciples. But when you're going out on mission trips, it's a good practice to go in pairs. So we see he gives them authority now. He's been doing all these miracles. Now he gives the disciples the authority to actually remove demons from people. That's authority over the unclean spirits. And they were able to do that. And we'll see when we get down to verse 13, they actually had the power to heal the sick. Can you imagine? I mean, if all of a sudden you had the power to do this. But he gave them that power to authenticate their message. They were going to go out and be teaching the gospel. And by giving them that power, that enabled them to show that they were speaking on behalf of God. He's now going to multiply his ministry by sending the apostles out to preach. And this is, again, part of their training. But he gives them this authority. His instructions to them is he tells them in verse 8, they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt. They're to wear sandals and they're not to put on two tunics. A tunic is used as a coat and a blanket when you sleep. So Jesus is telling them that they need to depend on God. That's all they're to just go out, go in twos, but they need to depend and rely on God for all their needs, that God will provide. Let me show you where Jesus has talked about that during some of his teaching. I'll go over to Matthew 6, and I'll begin in verse 31. Jesus says, Do not be anxious, then saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus is training. This is their first time to go out. But he's training them, and he wants them to be totally reliant upon God. And the Holy Spirit will give them the words to speak. That's taught elsewhere. But take nothing with you. Just go out and trust that God's going to provide for you. We should follow that. I mean, we've been blessed, all of us, tremendously. When you look at the rest of the world, 
we have been blessed, all of us, <laughs> tremendously. But we do need to rely more on God. What are we worrying about? God has it, you know? We don't need to worry about the politics. We don't need to worry about anything. We just got to put it on God, trust God. He's in control. And let's go about the business that God has us here to do. He goes on, verse 10. Jesus says to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Now, why is he saying this? A lot of the false teachers, what they would do is as they would move around, they were always looking for the upgrade. They'd go to somebody's house and then somebody say, oh, well, why don't you come on down? To our, I got a better house, you know, or I got better food. They're always looking for the upgrade. Yeah, better wine, better food, whatever it is. They were all in it for the money, these false teachers, and they were trying to get money from people. That's what they were doing. And Jesus is saying, don't be like them. Don't move from house to house. When you get somewhere and somebody says, hey, come stay with me, then go there and stay. That's been provided by God. He goes on in Matthew, if you want to look at it, Matthew 10, 8 through 9, he says, don't be trying to exploit your ministry for money, for personal gain. Now, let me quickly follow that up by telling you the New Testament is clear that it is correct for pastors to earn a reasonable living from their ministry. That is fine. But what these false teachers were doing, that's how they were trying to get rich. If you want a reference on pastors being able to live reasonably and derive a living from their ministry, that's in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 5 through 14. Chris definitely deserves everything, whatever he gets. Here, here. Oh, there, he <laughs> there he is. Let's see. We're in verse 11. In any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust from your soles of your feet for a testimony against them. He's telling them right up front, be prepared. You're going to be rejected. Yeah. You're not going to be received well everywhere. What he's telling them to do, this was a traditional way to sort of express scorn by shaking this dirt off your feet. Kind of was a way to show that they're unclean, they're contaminated. What Jesus is saying is that judgment will be upon them for rejecting the message that they were preaching and just shake the dust off of your feet and move on. And this is a good lesson to us. I know from time to time I encounter people who are not believers and as I share the gospel with them, they just want to argue about it. They want to try to convince me. I just move on. It's like, look, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. That's between you and God. I don't want to argue with you. If you want to choose to believe something different, that's between you and God. If I can help you or answer any questions, here's my card. Give me a call. But I move on. Their heart is hard. No sense in arguing about it. Just say, I'm only telling you this because I love you. If I can help you, I'm here. But until you are open to maybe a different point of view, there's no sense in us debating. Said, Shake the dust. Shake it off. I had a guy one time who I'd met with a couple of times. And then he said, you know, the reason I think God has put us together is because I think he wants you to hear a different point of view. And he didn't believe in God. And I said, I don't think that at all. And why don't you save that discussion for somebody who might be interested? There's nothing you're going to tell me about why you don't think God's around that I haven't heard before. So I don't need to hear any of that. When you do have questions that I can help you with, I'm delighted to reengage in the discussion. Here we go, verse 12. 
And they went out, these are the disciples, they went out and preached that men should repent, meaning turn away from sin, recognize that you need a Savior, recognize you can't get there on your own. And repent means turn from what you were thinking, that you could do it on your own, that you could get there by following the law. Repent, you need to go a different direction. Recognize that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and you need to embrace Jesus in faith as your Lord and Savior to receive forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And they're essentially going out as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I'll show you a verse on that, 2 Corinthians 5.20. I'll just go over there and read that. It's just one verse. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. So God's speaking through us to try to entreat others to repent, to turn towards God. And then Paul goes, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God's working through us to save others. That's what's going on. We're ambassadors, just like these apostles were sent out. It says in verse 13, I'm back over Mark 6, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So this oil, it was a symbol of God's grace and healing power. Jesus never anointed people with oil that I'm aware of, but the Old Testament used oil to symbolize the presence of God or the Holy Spirit. You can look at that in Exodus 30, verses 22 to 33, as well as in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. But the apostles did this to show their authority came from God, and that's what they were doing healing people, casting out demons, and preaching the gospel. Now, in our lesson today, I'll wrap up with this. Mark is actually going to sort of go back in time and explain now in his gospel what happened to John the Baptist. So that's what we're going to read about now. He's going to kind of look back and explain what happened to John the Baptist. Verse 14, it says, And King Herod heard of it, heard of the apostles going out and doing all this healing and what have you. King Herod heard of it, for his name, meaning Jesus' name, had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and therefore these miraculous powers are at work in him. Let me first address who is King Herod, okay? I've explained this to you all before, but just as a refresher. Remember, we had Herod the Great. There's lots of Herods in the Bible, so you can get confused. Herod the Great ruled the land of Israel from about 37 to 4 B.C., so roughly, we'll just say 35, 36 or so years. He was not a descendant of the Jews. He was a descendant of Esau. Remember who was the rejected twin? His father was Isaac and his brother was Jacob. But then the descendants of Esau did intermarry with Jews. So Herod claimed to be a Jew, although he was really a descendant of Esau. He didn't practice Judaism, but he ruled Israel from 37 to 4 BC. Remember, he was the one when Jesus was born who killed all the firstborn sons to try to get rid of Jesus. He was a wicked, wicked man. The Jewish people resented his rule. He was very immoral. They hated him for that. He actually killed two of his sons. I think he killed one of his wives. He would kill people in the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, when they disagreed with him. He was a wicked dude. When he died in 4 BC, 
his territory then was divided into four parts. Three of those parts were given to his three sons. Archelaus was given the south territory of Judea and Samaria. He was really inept, and Rome eventually replaced him with Pontius Pilate, who we'll read about when we get further into the gospel. The northern region was given to Philip, and Philip was the husband of Herodias. And we're going to see Herodias then has an affair with Herod Antipas, who was given Galilee, was part of his territory. Anyway, those were the three sons that we read about, and you can kind of get confused. But let's read on, and some of this will make sense. So some people were saying that these miracles are happening, and they don't deny the miracles. So they're saying in verse 15, some were saying he's Elijah. Now, the Jewish people knew the Old Testament said that before the Messiah returned, this is in Malachi 4-5, that Elijah would return or someone like Elijah would return. So they believed that. So they started thinking, well, if this guy's doing all these miracles, and remember, there have been no prophets for 400 years when the Old Testament closes out. And so they're thinking, well, maybe this is Elijah doing these miracles. Maybe he's come back. And then it says, and others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So they clearly understood that Jesus had these supernatural powers. He was able to do these miracles. But even though they were looking for Elijah, what they didn't understand is John the Baptist, and we talked about this back when we were studying some of the other Gospels, that John the Baptist had already fulfilled that role of Elijah coming back. I won't spend time on that here. You can go listen to one of those lessons where we talk about that. So they're thinking maybe it's Elijah, maybe it's some prophet of old that's come back, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, who I beheaded, has risen. What had happened is, well, let me read on, then I'll explain it. Verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias the wife of his brother, Philip, because he had married her. Herod had an affair with Philip's wife, whose name is Herodias. In verse 18, it says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him and could not do so. So when Herod and Herodias, who is not only the wife of his brother, but Herodias is also Herod Antipas's niece. So it's not only adultery, it's also incest. But they have this affair and then eventually they get married. And John the Baptist was telling them, calling them out on it, saying, this is not right. It's wrong for you to have your brother's wife. She's your niece. This is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. It really irritated Herodias. And so she wanted him killed. Herod had John the Baptist put in prison because that's what his wife wanted to have happen. And this all happened pretty quickly right after Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And then we really don't hear much of John the Baptist much more after that. Let's read on, verse 20. For Herod, this is Herod Antipas, was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed because he used to enjoy listening to him. So Herod Antipas, we're learning here, really sort of protected John the Baptist from his new wife, from her rage. 
Herod Antipas really feared the people because John the Baptist was very popular. And he feared the people, so he didn't want to have John the Baptist killed at that time. And we see here he was intrigued by him, by his teaching, by his preaching. Verse 21, And a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So he has this birthday party. These are all the leaders. You see, these are the men of the highest rank are all at this party. And it was very typical of parties like this. There'd be uninhibited gluttony, they'd drunkenness, they'd have sexual deviation. I mean, these were wild orgy-type parties. That's typical of what you would be having. So he's having this party, and they're all more than likely getting drunk. And so he decides, in verse 22, to have Herodias's daughter, who must have been beautiful and exotic, I'm reading into this just based on the way this goes down. He says, you know, I'll have her come down and entertain the guest because she's really something. So verse 22, and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And most commentators say it was probably a very erotic dance. All the men are probably filled with lust, more than likely. That's this pleasing pleased him and his dinner guest. And so now Herod wants to show off. It says, the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. So he makes this oath. He's bragging in front of his guests. They're all drunk, but he's bragging now. Verse 24. And so the daughter, she goes out and says to her mother, says to Herodias, what shall I ask for? And she, Herodias, says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Herodias had been wanting to kill or have John the Baptist killed ever since he made her feel guilty for the relationship that she had with Herod. Verse 25, and immediately she came in haste before the king and asked, this is the daughter, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. So he had no choice. He had to save face. He didn't want to be embarrassed in front of all of his dinner guests. And so he was basically trapped now. And we see what happens, verse 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back the head of John the Baptist. And he went and beheaded him in prison. So John the Baptist, he was the last Old Testament prophet. He's the first martyr for Jesus. And this is so common. Jesus had told the Jewish leaders how every prophet that was sent to them, how they always rejected the prophets and then killed them. And, of course, the new Jewish leaders were saying, yeah, that was our fathers and our forefathers, but we're not like that. We're not like that. Let me show you where that is, Matthew 23. I'll flip over there. You can go if you want. It's over to the left. Matthew 23, and I'll begin in verse 29. This is Jesus speaking. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These are the religious leaders. Hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. So they would go and they would decorate these monuments for the old prophets that their forefathers had killed, basically saying, we're not like that. Look what it says in verse 30. And say, 
If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And Jesus says, Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, that's what he's calling, Jesus is calling them this. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, from A to Z. And Zechariah was the last prophet of Israel who was also martyred whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. And they're going to kill Jesus. And then, as we know, all the apostles were killed. They all died a martyr's death, except for John. He was exiled to Patmos until he died. So they continued to do the same thing. Let's go back over to the text, Mark 6, and I'll finish out. Verse 28, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Verse 29, and when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. They also reported it to Jesus. You can look at that in Matthew 14, 12. We're going to see this Herod, Herod Antipas, will eventually meet Jesus just a few hours before Jesus' crucifixion. We'll be reading about that. Pilate's going to send Jesus to Herod Antipas because Pilate couldn't find any guilt in Jesus. Herod is probably relieved that Jesus was not the resurrected John the Baptist because he really respected John the Baptist. But we'll see Herod views Jesus as someone less than John the Baptist. Herod will ridicule him and send Jesus back to Pilate. We'll read about that later. Why don't we stop right there given the time? Some of the takeaways for me, just in summary, just as Jesus sends out the apostles to go and share the gospel with others, that's what we're instructed to do. And we should be more dependent on God for everything. I think we tend to worry too much. And because we've been given so much, I think it's real easy for all of us. I find myself doing this from time to time where we can become self-reliant. I think that's why Jesus said it's so hard for people who are well off to have a relationship with Jesus Christ because you don't need anything. You know, you're comfortable. And how many times are we getting too comfortable and not relying on Jesus and really not listening to what he wants us to do in our life? That's a big takeaway for me to be more in tune. And how do we do that? We do that through prayer. We do that through reading the scripture. Just wake up in the morning and say, hey, you gave me my breath. I'm here. What do you want to do through me today? I'm available. Just be available. So what questions or comments might you have today? I find it ironic in his own hometown. They knew he had done miracles. They believed he had wisdom. They knew him growing up. They knew his family, and they still rejected him. In my Ryrie, it says they took offense. Something stood in the way of their believing in him. Something stood in the way of them believing, which is so typical of us. I think the one thing is you got to remember, Nazareth is kind of like the hood, and he got out. So he got out, and so everybody in the hood's always angry at the guy leaves, and then he comes back as this like Messiah figure, and they're like, "We know who you are." 
I got to change your diaper. And so I think there's a lot there that, I mean, I think it'd be so hard for them to believe just because you kind of have that, you know, the hood mentality is like, you leave, you left us. You, you went for something greater. You're like now traveling itinerant rabbi preacher guy. You didn't just stay here as a carpenter. Who the heck are you? I mean, I think every one of us, if you grow up in maybe a way less affluent area, you'd have more of that mentality of like, you can't leave because once you do, you've forsaken us. And elsewhere in the Gospels, we hear where Jesus says there'll be places where families will be divided. Parents, children, brothers, sisters. It isn't that he doesn't like the family. Many of you are blessed to have families that you grew up in a Christian home and your parents were believers. But that's not the case for many people. And I've shared the story with you. When I left Catholicism, my mother was not happy with me at all and other family members as well. And there's a lot of pressure on people of other religions. They have a fear. If they tell their family that they become Christians, they're excommunicated from the family. Death. In some cases, it's death. Yeah. And so this is sort of part of what Jesus is saying here as well, that our love for him has to trump our love for our family. The love we have for him, it should be so immense that it makes our love for our family almost look like hate in comparison because it falls so short. Does that make sense to you? He's not telling us to hate our family, but we need to love him. That should be our priority. We may face some adversity in our own families because of our beliefs from time to time. We should expect that. We should certainly expect that from the culture and from friends and what have you. We're called to just love them, pray for them, love them, share the gospel. What I've used with my family is, look, I totally get it. I was taught the same thing. I don't hold my parents. I don't blame them. They taught me what they were taught. And once you have this book, it's like, this is God's word. You either believe it or you don't. And so you either go with what you were taught or go with what God's telling you in his Bible. I don't know if any of you have faced that challenge, but we should certainly expect it just from the culture. You're not always going to be well-received. And as Jesus said, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't like the message you're delivering. Uh We hear a lot of folks talking about how bad things are getting. It's my prayer that because of our society is, and I don't know what the word is, it's a woke society or whatever, but things are so bad. It's my prayer that God's redeeming love is going to shine forth and people are going to be so fed up with I've tried everything. Well, let's try this thing. Let's try this. If maybe we can start seeing more people's hearts turn towards God because they're desperate. Because we're getting in desperate times right now. Yep. That should be all of our prayer. It was encouraging. She brought a lesbian to church on Sunday. Yeah. She was just crying her eyes out uh, just listening to the message. It was exciting to kind of see that, that you just don't know where people are at and I think we're sometimes we get so afraid to be bold and ask and say, come and see. And man, the power of the gospel is greater than any sin, any lifestyle, anything. And it, it penetrates. And they may not receive it, but man, it'll impact them. They may say, I don't believe all the stuff you believe, but there's something there. Just plant the seeds. Mm-hmm. And tell your story. Tell yeah. what Jesus yeah. has to, your life before Christ and your life since Christ has come since you've accepted the gift that God gave in his son. That's right. That is the Christmas message. Come on, somebody preach that.
I don't know everything, but all I know is I was blind and now I see. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.